faith in God. We've been going into our Christmas series this year at Village Church. Last week we looked at hope. This week's sermon title is simple enough, Faith, Faith. Next week is on disappointment, and I'm hoping that I don't become the main illustration in that sermon. Do you have faith in God? This time of the year tends to remind us, at least it does me, of when you were a child. Perhaps you remember celebrating Christmas, surrounded by family and friends. You remember the atmosphere there. You remember the Christmas special being on television, the Christmas tree and those little light bulbs that would burn you if you touched them, the good old days. And if you're thinking back to when you were a child, you remember, too, what the world looked like to you back then, before people had betrayed you, before you knew that the world could be a cold and dark place, back when you still believed in hope, when you believed that you could trust almost anyone, before you knew the depravity and selfishness of others, before you knew your own depravity and selfishness, before you knew disappointment, when you believed in truth and had a firm moral conviction about right and wrong, before you had seen death with your own eyes, before you went through hard times later in life, you had the posture of a child, the posture of someone who is completely dependent upon others, perhaps even, and it is the truth, that you are dependent upon your creator. Maybe you knew that then even better than you know that now. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13, the word of the Lord says that children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You see, the word of God doesn't teach that children have to become like adults in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Rather, the word of God teaches that adults must become like children to inherit the kingdom of heaven. How? Well, not through our intellect, not through maturity and things like that, not by giving up the things that we've learned. The faith that we're to have according to scripture is also not the flimsy faith that you see on Lifetime and Hallmark Channel this time of the year where you better believe in these things we have no evidence for and shame on you if you don't believe these things. That's not what we're talking about as Christians when we talk about faith. A childlike faith, rather, is a humble dependence upon God, do you have that sort of faith in God? The Lord warns the people in the book of Isaiah that the people of God had failed in terms of their faith. They did not have that type of dependence upon God. They were not at least recognizing their dependence upon God. They were divided. Ephraim or Israel, those 10 tribes were allied with Syria against a threatening Assyria. And thus they were also allied against Jerusalem and Judah to whom Isaiah is sent. They wanted the help of Judah, Israel and Syria, wanted the help of Judah to resist the attacks of Assyria, the impending doom there. And so Judah is fearful because of Assyria, but Judah is also fearful because of Israel and because of their alliance with Syria. 
And the Lord begins that book in Isaiah, and you're not going to see this on the screen, but I'm just going to summarize what's going on. God says to his people, children I've reared up and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Foreigners and women and infants rule over you. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And what we want to know, what does the Lord suggest that his people should do? He tells them to repent, to turn from their sins, to actually do so, not to say it with their lips and their faulty worship, He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A hopelessness apart from God, which brings us to our first point, faith despairs of all human hope. Faith despairs of all human hope. In Isaiah chapter seven, the word of the Lord says that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, who is also called Ephraim in this passage, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Jerusalem down there with Judah, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Verse two, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There was impending doom and they were afraid. Verse three, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. Well, where was he? You and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool to the highway to the washer's field. Oh, he was prepping. Ahaz was out making sure they had enough water for the coming invasion. He was making sure that they'd have enough food, that they would have the resources they needed as Jerusalem and Judah to resist whatever would happen with Israel or Ephraim and Syria, or even when they faced off against Assyria as well. It says here in verse four, say to him, speaking to Isaiah, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, 
Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as a king in the midst of it. You see, what they had planned is to set up a puppet king, the son of Tabeel there in Judah, instead of Ahaz, because they couldn't defeat them the first time around. Thus says the Lord God, verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Thus says the Lord, Ahaz, Isaiah, people of Judah, have faith, believe. If you're not firm in faith, you won't be established in the land. You'll lose all of it. Be firm in faith. But Ahaz didn't obey. Look in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord God to the test. Oh, pious Ahaz. He quotes from scripture. He says, I'm not going to test the Lord. The only problem is the Lord told Ahaz, ask for a sign. You don't get to quote scripture and use it against God because scripture is God's word. God tells Ahaz what to do. And Ahaz is so full of himself and his own selfish preparations and trying to fix his own problems that he won't simply trust almighty God. He disobeys him, rejects the sign. He says in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, God said, here then, O house of David, that's the significance of Judah. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Do you and I ever weary God with our sinful self-dependence and pride? Trying to fix everything ourselves. Your self-dependence, your reliance upon your intellect, your reliance upon your own strength, your love for your autonomy, your self-will and self-law over against God. Your so-called good works according to the word of God are as filthy rags. That's what the word of the Lord says in Isaiah. We don't just have to be saved from our sins, the bad things we do. You and I, we stand in need of salvation from our good works. They are not enough to please a holy God. We refuse the hope and the help that he has granted us. And it results in the depression that besets us all around. We're depressed by the state of things. Be honest with yourself. You keep losing your fight against temptation. You can't seem to fix your marriage. You don't know what you're going to do financially. You're worried for the world in which your children and grandchildren will grow up. In short, you're not filled with faith you, like Ahaz, are filled with fear. You're filled with cynicism, with anxiety, with blaming others, and with worry. 
The Apostle Paul recognized this in Romans 7, 18. He knew there was nothing that we can do to merit God's favor, to get the help that we need on our own. In Romans 7, 18, the word of the Lord says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's Paul saying that, that is in my flesh, nothing good. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Augustus Toplady recognized this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Faith despairs of all human hope. But faith also directs its gaze toward God. Faith directs its gaze toward God. Look in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself, the Lord is giving this sign to Ahaz now. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin or the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now listen closely so that it's not rumored of me that I've denied the virgin birth of Christ because I don't. Listen closely because this word virgin here in the Hebrew is the word Alma, which can also mean young woman. It does not strictly refer to a woman who's never known a man. The word for that in Hebrew is Betula. Betula is not used here. Alma is meaning young woman or a virgin. And so this gives us insight into understanding how it is that God is going to give the people in that time a sign. The Lord promises the sign of a son who will be born to deliver the people right then and there. The Lord prophesies it or predicts it such that it is a miraculous sign. And so he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. There the name applies to this son who is promised. And that name means God with us. Verse 15, it says, he shall eat curds and honey. He will eat that because there's nothing else to eat in these war-torn times. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, I want you to pay attention to the pattern of the text and the language there. This is easy. Just listen, right? He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That's important because we're going to see, see parallel language in just a moment that tells us who this is referring to in the immediate context. That language of refusing the evil and choosing the good and knowledge of that just refers to someone who is a child. That's what it's speaking of. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Then the Lord said to me in chapter eight of Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to, here's a mouthful, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. There's a name for you if you're expecting. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, verse two, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. 
And I went to the prophetess, Isaiah writes, and she conceived and bore a son. There's the son. The Lord said to me, call his name, Maharshalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. There's the parallel language that I asked you to listen for a moment ago. And so this sign is fulfilled in their context, at least for then and there. The trouble is that this fulfillment does not meet all of the demands of the text as the narrative given to us by God continues. And so in um, this chapter here, God goes on to describe the judgments and the things that are coming upon the people and then calls the people themselves, oh, Emmanuel, oh, God with us. He, he does it again later on there, Isaiah 8 and 1 through 10. If you look in verse 9, the word of the Lord says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. I don't know why that's repeated. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. First, Emmanuel's used as a proper name. Then it's used as a claim. God is for us is what this name means. God is on our side is what this name means. But also God is with us. God dwells among us. But what sort of God is this who's on their side? What sort of God is on the side of Isaiah and Ahaz and the people of Judah? They need a reminder of this as the prophet Isaiah needed a reminder of this just two chapters before in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, the burning ones. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I enjoy living two hours from the mountains and two hours from the beach once again. I was in Virginia Beach this last weekend, and my wife and I were sitting outside having breakfast, and some sort of military jet flew over, and it rumbled all around us inside of our chest. It moved the table. It was shaking the buildings. We never saw it. It was above the clouds, but it was loud. This was even louder. And Isaiah is struck at it. He says in verse five, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Notice the first thing that he is cognizant of are the ways that he has used his sinful mouth. And he lives among a people who have done the same because what's in the heart comes out through that thing. He saw himself for the sinner that he was. And then one of the seraphim in verse six flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the place of sacrifice. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Folks, the God who is with us 
is the God who will atone for your sins and mine. He will take your guilt completely away such that you have a clear conscience, much as Isaiah was given one because of the ministry that was set before him. In verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Well, the message that he will give to the people is one that's rejected by the people. That's Isaiah's ministry. Keep on hearing, it says there in Isaiah 6, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? But you see, Isaiah prefigures the one who was to come with the same message that would also be rejected by God's people. In John chapter 12 and verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. There it is. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, the word of God says, because Isaiah, or sorry, rather, because Jesus Sorry, Isaiah, there we go. Let's start over, I'm trying to clarify, I made it muddy. Isaiah said these things because Isaiah saw his glory. Well, whose glory did he see a moment ago in Isaiah 6? Yahweh of armies. But here it's talking about Jesus because Jesus, the incarnate son, is Yahweh whom Isaiah saw seated upon the throne. The son is eternal. He did not begin to become the son. He did not begin to exist. The son of God, the second person of the Trinity has existed for eternity. And he took on human flesh in a babe, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this time of year. He saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Our society is obsessed with what other people think about us because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We know that this God, whom Isaiah sees seated upon the throne, is the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. Because Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25, I'm gonna begin there at the end of verse 20. The word of the Lord says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see this God who was with them would ultimately be with you and with me, with us in Jesus Christ, the son who is Yahweh, the Lord of armies in the Old Testament. The Bible from the beginning in Genesis all the way through the end in Revelation is about Jesus Christ. Such that Isaiah in chapter eight, verses 11 through 15, he writes and he says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor is holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Not the Assyrians, 
not Israel and Ephraim and, and this alliance they've made with Syria. No, let the Lord of hosts be your fear and your dread. Have faith in him. Be firm in faith or you will not be firm at all. Don't fear man, fear God. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Folks, this is a prophecy of what Christ Jesus did for us when he came and his own did not know him. It's quoted by Peter twice in his epistles. And the apostle Paul understood this as well. In Romans 1 verses 1 through 5 Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, listen to this, for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We see that in Isaiah 8 and verse 16. Isaiah understands this is not merely referring to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It's referring to one who would come. Isaiah 8 and verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. In other words, this is speaking of something that is to come in the future as well. The same God who provides for them this sign in the birth of Isaiah's son is to provide a sign for the people in the future. And that person, as we already know, is Jesus Christ. You know, it's not enough just to know the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are lots of people who know that. It's not even enough to merely assent to those facts. In other words, you believe in them in some intellectual way. Well, I believe that that happened. No, you must also then entrust yourself, not to a dead Christ, but to a resurrected Christ. Those are the three aspects of faith that the Protestant reformers spoke of. And you've heard it said, I'm sure that your faith is only as good as that which you place it in. So I want to ask you, I want to ask myself this morning, what is the object of your faith? Really, like when you're pressed, like Ahaz was and Judah and Isaiah, what's the object of your faith? What are you placing your trust in? Joel Beakey writes that too many Christians live in constant despondency because they cannot distinguish between the rock on which they stand and the faith by which they stand upon the rock. Faith is not our rock. Christ is our rock. We do not get faith by having faith in our faith or by looking to faith but by looking to Christ. Looking to Christ is faith. Spiritually speaking, for you and me this morning, Christ must be born in you through God's spirit and you placing your faith in him. Yes, 
O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Isaiah goes on to describe these people who are in darkness, who are outside of Judah. They had walked in darkness, in the gloom of deep darkness. They had walked in what we can say is the opposite of earthly joy. Which leads to this final point. Faith determines earthly enjoyments. Faith determines earthly enjoyments. We want to say that faith determines eternal enjoyment. The psalm teaches us that. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But faith determines earthly enjoyments. What is God promising here with Ahaz and Judah? That they're not going to lose the land. They're not going to lose this war that's coming upon them. If they're firm in faith, they will be firm. They'll be established in the land. The problem is that Ahaz is not following after God. Isaiah didn't want to before he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon the throne. Isaiah 9.1, though, promises this even for those who are in this deep darkness, he says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The apostle Paul recognizes this in the text we just read a moment ago in Romans 1 and verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, listen to this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, this promised child is not just for one select people group. It's for all who come to him through faith. Romans 10 tells us this in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You want to know how you're saved? I mean, this is simple Sunday school stuff, right? But there are a lot of people who don't get it. And some of you may not. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But listen to this in verse 16. Not all have obeyed the gospel. Paul just mentioned the obedience of faith in 1.5. And here he says that not all have obeyed the gospel. What does that mean? It means they've not turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. You must obey the gospel. How? With the empty hand of faith. You receive who and what Christ is for you. Simply by faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Of course, this entails something for those sitting there thinking, well, I've trusted in Christ and I'm trusting on Christ now. And I hope that's true of all of you. But you know that this presses you onward to one form of obedience that is called evangelism, teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, with those to whom you come into contact with. Charles Spurgeon said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Being saved by God, Emmanuel, gives you that 
deep heart desire to see the nations saved for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That's one way we obey the gospel. Even having come to Christ through faith, there's also an obedience of faith that is based in the works which spring from faith. Understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we do good things to be saved. I'm saying that we do good things because we are saved. It's faith which produces works. James 2, 14 through 20 James talks about this type of faulty faith. He says in verse 17, actually, of chapter 2, so faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says that even the demons believe that there's one God and they shudder. We don't even tremble sometimes when we think about the existence and the attributes of God and believe that he is there and that he exists and we profess our faith with our lips and yet not our lives. James is saying a true faith is going to produce good works. And again, the Apostle Paul sees this as well. In Romans 1.8, again, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Listen to this, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Why is their faith proclaimed? How is their faith proclaimed in all the world? Romans 16, verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You see, faith produces in you and me true faith in Christ Jesus. God produces in you and me a desire to follow God, a desire to tell other people about him, and also a desire to do good works joyfully. Thomas Watson wrote that faith believes as if it did not work and it works as if it did not believe. Our obedience should be known to all. And one of the ways that we obey is simply by being joyful in the truth of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not standing here to Jesus juke you. You heard that terminology? People will make these fundamentalist sounding phrases. Listen, I'll take a hundred of those phrases any day to the trash that I see in our world. Joy in Jesus is what matters according to God's word. My wife provided me a little counseling the other day. I love it when she does that. We were getting ready to go on a little trip. The in-laws were in town and she said, you know, I think you struggle with situational joy. I don't know who taught her that, but I will find them. But she said, when things are good, you're praising the Lord. When things aren't going so well, you're down. And folks, I do want to emphasize that is about me, but it's not just about me. Because I've been around enough people to know it's about you too. Our joy must not be situational. Our joy must be grounded in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came as a little baby, lived a perfect life according to God's law, went to the cruel cross and suffered and died to absorb the wrath of God toward you and me. He drank up every drop. He was laid low in that grave and he was raised high in the resurrection. And through faith in him, you are saved and given joy. When we obey God, We do so joyfully. And Isaiah says so. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Listen to this, verse 3 of Isaiah 9. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why, Isaiah? Look in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's not Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Do not overcomplicate humble dependence upon the Lord. Forsake all fleshly ambitions of your intellect, emotions, and will. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ as God in all you do. Be sure your faith produces joyful obedience and celebrate Christmas in the light of Christ. A Savior is born. He is Christ. The Lord. 